You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, Season 1, Episode 24. With Citizenship and Immigration Canada making it increasingly difficult to speak to an officer, there are a few places to turn for information that can be relied upon. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy. As he answers a wide variety of immigration questions and shares practical tips and guidance to help you along your way. Well, hello there, and welcome back to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Holthy, coming to you from the beautiful province of Alberta, Canada. Now, I have one confession to make. I spent the last week down in Montana uh, in the United States, and I must admit, it does rival the beauty of Alberta. So, I love my country. Um, I love the province that I live in. But I'll tell you, Montana has some wonderful country. I spent one day drifting down the North Fork of the Flathead River with my son on some inflatable kayaks, and we fished for cutthroat trout. And I'll tell you, oh boy, that was just an unbelievable experience there. Yeah, the, the, I guess one, one uh, similarity I will, I will confirm with you is that uh, it is the same Rocky Mountains that <laughs> that are that are drifting down there into uh, into Montana from our fine province of Alberta. So that was my uh, little time away, and this podcast is being released a little bit late. Uh, usually, I try to get these out uh, every week, but I was away a little bit with my family, so I'm happy to uh, to to finally get this one out to you, and it is awesome. Um, I seem to say that about all of them, but it's the truth. I had an opportunity to converse with uh, Liz Wozniak over a topic that is the bane of every single immigration lawyer and consultant's experience flat out. And that is trying to communicate with the immigration officials. And uh, I invited Liz to come on and talk a little bit about her experience trying to navigate the uh, the challenges of, of communicating effectively with uh, the various immigration departments, whether it's IRCC or uh, communicating with officers at the ports of entry or Service Canada, or even trying to communicate uh, outside of Canada with the visa offices. And so I brought Liz in to talk a little bit about her experience doing that. And we shared a number of stories. And I know that all of you uh, lawyers out there will find uh, our topic uh, of particular interest, given the challenges, like I said, that we have trying to have any meaningful communication with a government who who does everything in their way and everything in their power to, to block and prevent us t- from being able to communicate with them. So this is the, uh, the topic of our podcast today, and uh, I'll go right now to that interview with Liz. Well, I'm here with uh, Elizabeth Wozniak, an immigration lawyer who uh, is the owner of North Star Immigration Law, Inc., the largest Canadian immigration law firm in the Maritimes. How are you doing, Liz? I'm doing great, Mark. Thanks. Well, we sure um, appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Uh, I thought maybe what I'd do is provide a little bit of an introduction before we jump into things, um, if that's okay. Sure, that sounds good. Great. So Liz leads a team of about four lawyers and one articled clerk, um, in her practice in uh, in Nova Scotia, 
and she provides legal services and creative solutions in all aspects of Canadian immigration law. And uh, in the past, I've always indicated that I tend to focus on more business-related immigration, but uh, I always admire people who tackle a much broader breadth, and uh, so that's that's awesome. It's more fun. It's yeah. a lot more drama, a lot more fun. <laughs> drama, most definitely. <laughs> So listener team uh, work, I understand, in a, a collaborative environment where only the lawyers work on client files. And I'll tell you, that's, that's awesome. I know many, you know, many law firms have a, a stable full of paralegals and other support staff that are really pumping out the work. And so it's quite refreshing to hear about a law firm where uh, the, the lawyers themselves are right in the trenches, filling out the forms and dealing with the insanity of communicating with immigration <laughs> offices. So that's awesome. Yeah. Also knocking our heads against the walls constantly, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Now, Liz, you were originally from Edmonton, Alberta. Yeah, from Alberta, just like you. Awesome. That is very cool. And, um, and you indicated that you completed your teaching uh, degree um, and uh, your, well, your education degree, and then you taught English in China and Korea for five years. Can you share a little yeah. bit about that experience? So it was uh, mid-90s, and I had just graduated from the University of Alberta. And basically, I had no, um, no job offer in Canada. And so I just basically got a job in China. I got offered a job to teach in a university in China. And I thought, oh, this is perfect. So I bought myself a one-way ticket to China, <laughs> got paid $100 a month for a year. It was the best job I think I've ever had. And, um, but after my year there, you couldn't stay because the, the way the visas requirements worked. Um, so I, and without a return ticket, I had like, I think I had $50 us and so I took a boat to Korea with 50 bucks in my pocket and started teaching there. And it, um, it was great because I was able to pay off my student loans and save money to go to law school, which is what I ultimately always planned to do. And, um, you know, I was actually kind of an awful teacher, so it's probably good that I... <laughs> made the transition to law, which is where I should have always been. That is awesome. 50 bucks in your pocket. Now, did you have a job lined up in Korea before you got on the boat? Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Just showed up. Took, I took a bus to downtown Seoul from the port in Korea and uh, got off the bus and had a little Lonely Planet, you know, whatever guidebook, and basically just uh, started from scratch. That is unbelievable. That is so cool. Okay, so so you ultimately uh, completed that. Then you you went and studied law um, at Dalhousie in Halifax, and you graduated yeah. in two thousand one. Yeah. So what I should say though, as well as not as as only having fifty bucks in my pocket, I also didn't have a work permit for Korea. So I got the feeling of what it was like to work under the table uh, in another country. So I started to realize I did eventually get a work permit, of course. But for the first little while, I didn't have one. And so that really started me thinking about the idea of, you know, immigration and what it means to feel vulnerable without status. And if, if something were to happen to me, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable calling the police without status there because I didn't want to get deported. So I think that's what kind of triggered my interest ultimately in immigration law. And, um, and so it was, it came in quite handy when I went to law school. That is awesome. And you know what, that's the exact question I was going to ask you, your, you know, to what extent your experience teaching English overseas impacted on your decision to focus on immigration after you obtained your law degree 
So that that's that's awesome. Yeah, it was. It definitely factored in into the decision not, not to go to law school necessarily, but to to focus on that area of law because I could see how it just didn't make sense to me how you know you can import goods from other countries, but if you're a, a human being, you can't cross borders freely. It just didn't. I didn't understand how that worked and what the you know what the what the laws were. And so as I was in law school, I started doing volunteer work on refugee matters. And that's when it really sort of hit home. And I was like, oh, man, this is this is hard for people, um, you know, to, to flee, um, you know, from a, a country and suffering overseas and to come to Canada and have a really, really obtuse and difficult system to manage to navigate through. Uh, and so that's, you know, that's how I started doing immigration law in general was doing um, refugee claims in, back in law school. Very cool. And so to what extent has your practice continued to to assist um, maybe some of those more vulnerable groups? So, yeah, like Nova Scotia is unique because um, as a province, we have absolutely no legal aid for any immigration or refugee matters whatsoever. So the only way people who uh, can't afford a lawyer can get any legal assistance is by finding someone to do their work pro bono. Um, so at our office, we all, all of the lawyers in the office, they are all encouraged to take on one or two pro bono files at a time. And those, may, those may be refugee sponsorships, they may be refugee claims, they may be humanitarian applications, pros, that kind of stuff. So we're all pretty actively involved in that. It's just part of like a social justice aspect of our practice. Wonderful. You know, and that's one of the initiatives constantly within uh, law societies across the country is encouraging us to get more involved in pro bono uh, endeavors. And you know, when you have individuals and groups that are really vulnerable, it's pretty easy to, uh, you know, to feel a desire to reach out and help them. And uh, that's, that's wonderful. I love hearing that. And I'm sure you've got tons of experience of experiences of clients, you know, who have come back after you've, you've, you know, gone out of your way to help them and brought you, you know, cookies or, <laughs> you know, well, it's, it's always lovely when you see people, especially if you help them when they had like young kids and you see them and the kids have grown up and they've got their passports now and, you, you know, they've really integrated well and, you know, they're, they're contributing and it's, it's so awesome. That is amazing. All right. Well, let's jump into the real purpose of our, <laughs> of our uh, podcast episode today. And um, I was reading uh, one of your blog posts just on the frustrations of trying to communicate with the various government bodies that administer immigration, whether it's IRCC, Immigration, uh, Refugees and Citizenship Canada, IRC, as we commonly refer to them <laughs> as, um, as well as Service Canada and the Temporary Foreign Worker Program and even the borders, the CBSA sometimes and, and navigating inland and and uh, and uh, the, the port of entry um, uh, process is trying to reach out to officers and communicate to them. It can be so frustrating because they've really closed off many of the avenues that we used to have to, you know, to reach out when problems ar uh, arose. And so I wanted to bring you on uh, just to share some insight that you've had in navigating this uh, somewhat painful experience <laughs> when it comes to trying to communicate with all these lovely government departments. And so I thought maybe what we could start off with is is IRCC. And one of the more common things that we get, uh, I think, uh, from our clients is, where's my application at? It's it's past the, the stated processing times. And, and so um, knowing what we know now, 
what are uh, some of the ways that you feel are most effective, or at least how do you go about inquiring and, uh, you know, with, with an entity who really doesn't want to talk to you regarding the status of an application? So not one that's maybe fallen off the rails, but just an application that uh, has just been in there for a while and your client just wants to know where it's at. Yeah, so I think I should probably preface all of this, including that blog post, by saying, you know, we have to laugh about it because otherwise we'll cry, and it'll give us a, ner- a nervous breakdown trying to f- trying to navigate through these vortexes of government bureaucracy that always change. But I think generally, like what I said in that blog post, was that our our practice at our office these days has been more to submit the case specific inquiries online rather than bothering to call the call center, which is like so aggravating. And, you you know, if even if you can get through to a person, it's very, very questionable whether they can actually help you. Um, and so the case-specific inquiry form, we find it slightly more effective <laughs> than, <laughs> than the call center. But you're right, it is incredibly opaque and it's really frustrating for us. And we're lawyers. Think about the individuals trying to do it on their own. Exactly. And there is no intuitive calling tree structure. There isn't. <laughs> you know, there's nothing that says, okay, uh, if, you would, if you wish to speak to an officer, pl- press zero, which there used to be. <laughs> yeah, and it's crazy now. It just, you just, I, I've, I've gotten in trouble because I've pressed random buttons and then I just get to somebody and they say, how did you get to me? So, no, I know it's ridiculous. And I think in your blog post, you'd indicated that you also used it as a babysitter service for some well, of your younger really children. Well, it's really because you know they can, they, that call center line can entertain children for hours because you'll never talk to a human being. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Don't tell anybody I said that. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so with the call center, obviously that's a useful, well, theoretically, if you're, if you're trying to get some form of status on an application, I guess that would be the, the place that you'd go um, if you're in Canada. And uh, so those types of internal inquiries. But can you talk just a little bit more about this case specific uh, inquiry? Is it uh, phone number? Is it an email that you send? How, how, how exactly does that work? So it's through the online form. So basically um, on that ERC website, there's an online form that you submit kind of through them and you have to upload a bunch of information and documents um, depending on what you're trying to do. Like for example, if you're trying to um, match a receipt, a fee receipt to a file because you paid $5 too little on your application form and you realize later or if you're trying to attach a use of representative form so you can inquire about the status of a file. So that's all done through this online form, and uh, it's like a little portal. Um, and you may or may not get a response, you know, we, we, and the response you get may or may not be um, in answer to your actual question. It may just be some random, unhelpful response. Um, but I, we, we have found that they do generally respond, and it does... What that also does is allow you, as a practitioner anyway, I don't know if it would work for an individual, um, to escalate it up to case review if you don't get a response within 30 days. So that's the other option, too, is to, to uh, email case review. Um, and their email address is on the CIC website as well. And we can put that within the show notes as well for yeah. the podcast. Sure, and you and but case you doesn't want to touch anything unless unless it's been at least thirty days without a without a uh, you know response from the online inquiry. Mm-hmm. And you make a very very good point there because right now one of the the more painful aspects of, of immigration is express entry, 
and dealing with an online filing system that really does not allow for any other updates to uh, what you've submitted unless you receive a specific request to do so. And uh, I know we received a little bit of enlightenment from one of the immigration um, officials who, uh, who provided some insight on what happens when we ask for a reconsideration of a file who, you know, that has been refused or returned <laughs> mm-hmm. because it was missing a document. Or, the, you know, in some cases, it, you know, we had applications returned where they never should have been. It was all right. there. And uh, the, the response that we got was uh, that it was the call center agents who were actually fielding those inquiries. <laughs> wow. And right. so I'm not sure if you if you heard that, but that was uh, on our express entry panel. Uh, I didn't realize that, but it, it frightens me to think that the call center are ones that are uh, are making those determinations. Yeah, especially when you're asking for reconsideration of a, an application that had been um, returned, and uh, yeah, yeah, usually the answers were quite short and succinct. And uh, sorry, we've considered it, and no, we're not going to reopen it. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yikes. But you have a written record when you send those, uh, you know, those inquiries. And like you indicated, sometimes you actually do get a response that's meaningful and useful. And when you have virtually no other alternative, that's pretty much what you're left with. For sure. And, you know, for a long time, we used to, I don't know if you do in, in Alberta, but we used to always fax Vegreville because it's always, it seems to me it's always like an extension application or a restoration or something that's being processed through the case processing center in Vegreville. But for... You know, the past couple of years anyway, anything you fax to the um, uh, office in Vegreville, all you get back is a don't fax us, fax back. <laughs> so um, so we laugh at those in our office because, you know, sometimes there's no other way. If, if you have received an LMIA approval for a work permit extension application that's in process and you need to get that matched to the file, um, you know, we would FedEx it to Vegreville, we would upload it on the case-specific inquiry, but we would also um, email or fax it to, to Vegreville as well. And we get this, you know, this one, you know, template, you know, pro forma form back that says, don't fax us. And uh, so we laugh and we make a joke in our office that there's a, there's a little troll working in the office in Vegreville and that's all it does all day long is send these mean faxes back to people in response to faxes they've sent that are you know, for a lot of people, it's, it's really critical. It's, you know, whether they're going to be able to stay in Canada or not. Yes. And that is the issue. This, you know, this somewhat unfeeling, you know, completely, not even impartial, but just, uh, I don't even know the best word to describe it. This completely, uh, you know, uh, person on the other side who, who has no feeling and no consideration for, the impact of these very arbitrary decisions or even refusing to acknowledge receipt of something and, and it can affect people's lives. And so, yeah, and it's hard to imagine a more serious process, right? I mean, I guess you can imagine that the criminal justice system would never have those kinds of um, bureaucratic minefields that the immigration process does. I mean, you, you know, immigration law, it's just um, this, this unbelievable, you know, behemoth of, of bureaucracy that, that I also think like, wow, people whose first language is in English or French would have a horrible time trying to, to navigate this. Yeah. These roadblocks have been put in place specifically to prevent people from being able to contact. And I remember uh, one discussion we had when I was on the national executive with the CBA, 
Uh, one of the officers had indicated that they do not pay their officers to think and, uh, <laughs> and that the whole goal is to completely automate the process of applying for immigration to Canada. And you can see that to some extent with the express entry regime, but really that is the, that's the world that we're, you know, that we're, we're having to navigate as we try to assist our clients. And you're, you're a hundred percent correct. I can only imagine what it's like for someone whose first language is not English. So that's crazy. inside Canada, it's painful. What, what, <laughs> what if you get an issue with a visa office abroad? You know, are there I mean, options there? I think it's, it's even harder, right? Cause you can't access the call center if you're overseas. Um, I don't know if you can do the case specific inquiry. I mean, I guess we do for certain overseas clients or express entry and things like that. But, um, but no, if you're, if you're abroad, I mean, you're really at the whim of the, the visa office. And sometimes you don't even know what office your application's sitting in, right? You may have applied in, in Cairo, but the application gets sent to, you know, Vienna because mm-hmm. of the, the processing load. So, um, so it's, I think it's extremely difficult to, to navigate through that. To the point where I think people should get awards for just managing their own files, like, you know, getting to a point where they can actually get things processed. I think it's, it's incredible to even get to that point. Even if you get a refusal, at least you got in front of somebody somewhere. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, when, when I think about overseas applications, for years and years, it was always, who has the email address for the program manager for this visa office abroad? Right. Yeah. And we would try to escalate that way because there was no real meaningful phone number or email address that we could send to a regular visa officer. The only yeah. contact or first point of contact we had was right at the top. So you can imagine when things are going south. And then you feel south. so bad, right? Yeah. yeah. And you're emailing the program manager and you think, geez, it's, it's, you know, something that hopefully could be answered by a lower level person, but all we have is that one name. And, you know, that, that having that one name is like a golden ticket, right? So you've got that name and hopefully that program manager is at that same visa office because if they've moved on, which they always do, you end up with an outdated program manager list. So it's, it's all very tricky. Yeah, yeah. And gone are the days when you, you know, you had good relationships with officers and they were reasonable and understood, you know, when, <laughs> when there were simple errors made that could be easily corrected or they understood, you know, truly urgent circumstances. And, uh, you know, to some extent, the way the government has created these programs, um, m- you know, many of these applications have urgent uh, issues aso- associated with them. And so when everything is urgent, then nothing is urgent. And, uh, yeah, it's just a machine, right? So, and yeah. it's, it's sad because it's getting worse. Indeed. So one of the things that you and I talked about before, um, was circumstances, and this does fall in line with communicating with the government where we have people who come to us who are in really, uh, a bad situation. There has been uh, abuse by an employer or there's been other issues and, IRCC has set up these mechanisms, and I guess to some extent Service Canada has as well, ESDC, uh, for us to report uh, uh, report abuse. And it's a wonderful thing if it works. <laughs> but you indicated that uh, that maybe that wasn't your experience. And I had alluded to this in one of my previous blog posts 
um, just about how our previous minister, Jason Kenney, had confirmed unequivocally that every single tip would be investigated and that, you know, the, the, the no employers who were treating their foreign workers poorly were going to be tracked down and hunted down and prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Uh, but you seem to have had a different experience. Well, yeah, I mean, we, I, I just feel like it's, it's, I'm laughing again, because I, otherwise I'd be crying. I feel like the, the mechanisms that exist are really don't work at all. And that they especially don't work for the individual who's being abused. We've had a couple of experiences in our office where a nanny has come to us, who's in an abusive situation with, with their employer. So they're here in the caregiver program, uh, generally speaking, living in the house with the family. And, um, you know, you end up, on the phone, on this, you know, on the hotline, uh, trying to, trying to report this, thinking that, that surely there'll be some recourse, that nanny will be given a temporary permit or some sort of respite to be able to stay here, maybe to, to work for a bit, to find another employer. Um, but no, there's, there's nothing that exists. You end up on hold being, you know, shuffled around from officer into agent and, you know, finally told somebody will call you back within 24 or 48 hours and they never do. So really, there's there's no mechanism there, and um, you know Jason Kenney sure talked a good talk, but uh, but I don't think that, that that works, and I just I wonder why they even bother having that in place because it clearly doesn't serve any purpose, um, especially to the the person it's supposed to protect. That's really disappointing, you know. And you ask the question, well, why do they have it? I right from the beginning, I've always felt that our whole employer compliance regime has been a complete um, knee-jerk reaction to public shaming exercises by CBC Go, uh, CBC Go Public. And you know, to a large extent, um, much of what was put in place uh, was for optics' sake far more than it ever was for uh, an actual remedy for individuals who were suffering abuse. And it's uh, it's disappointing to to hear that story, especially for you know for living caregivers and nannies who are in those vulnerable types of positions. So yeah. uh, interesting insight. Yeah, and I mean, and, and like you mentioned, um, Service Canada, you know, they also, and I think you're right about that. The the sort of knee jerk um, apps aspect to the to the mechanisms being being created or rolled out. But I just I've always felt like. The mechanisms are all there for employers to comply or for for people to abide by the rules. It's just, um, you know, the officers either aren't aware or there's not enough communication between, you know, the immigration officers and the Canada Border Services officers. So so things aren't followed up on, things fall through the cracks. Um, And and it makes you wonder, you know, a lot of money is being spent on, on this infrastructure to create employer compliance. But, you know, if if um, the original rules had just been, um, you know, followed up on and abided by, we wouldn't have this situation. <laughs> that's that's hilarious. I, I'm laughing now because that's exactly what I have been saying for years. If they had just followed up and, and actually uh, enforced the, the rules that were in place, even pre-2011 when, you know, when they instituted yeah. the first round of these uh, more uh, enforcement-minded regulations, um, we wouldn't be in the situation we're in now. Yeah, no, I totally agree. So let's shift now to another one of the government bodies that we commonly deal with, and and, and that is Service Canada. And so, um, you know, we talk about this wonderful world of the Temporary Foreign Worker Program and all the changes that have, have occurred lately to make it much more difficult 
uh, to obtain an approval for labor market impact assessments. But uh, just even trying to navigate any form of communication with Service Canada is also a pain. Everything from the start of filing an application all the way through to trying to speak with someone when things are going off the rails. So can you share some insight on that? Well, we have, like, I mean, the, the most classic example of a, broke, a broken system is the fact that, you know, for six weeks, the fax machine in the Service Canada office in St. John, New Brunswick, which is where we have to file all, all the applications for this region, um, was broken. But we were sending faxes because that's how you apply for LMIA. You, send, you, you, do by, you do it by fax generally, or at least we do. Um, so you'd send the, you'd send the application and, and you'd get a fax transmission slip saying it went through no problem. And then a few weeks later, you'd be like, well, what's going on with that file? You'd call and they'd say, oh, sorry, the fax machine was, has been broken for three weeks. And I was wondering like, how hard could it be to, to buy a new fax machine? <laughs> like that is not, you know, a, a hill to die on as far as the government goes, like surely, you know, and so then you wonder, well, how many employers are sitting there waiting for an application to be processed? That was never even received. It's just the craziest thing. That that's unbelievable. So you're saying <laughs> that for three weeks, the main and virtually only source of submitting an application to the government, at least to, to Service Canada, was on the surface appeared to be working, but was not at all. Right. Yeah. And so, like, actually, not just three weeks. It was, for, I think, for about six weeks. Uh-huh. There was a notice that went up on the website eventually that said, "Don't send us anything by fax because our fax machine is." <laughs> It's been broken since April 2nd or whatever. And it's just crazy. I mean, that's, you know, so it's, it's just, that's just one example. But, you know, there's so many other examples of problems. Like, why can't the rules be clear with Service Canada? Where is the LMIA policy manual? We don't have it, right? How are you ever supposed to understand how a, an employer or how, a, you know, a lawyer working for an employer, how are you ever supposed to understand how, uh, factors are weighted or how the policy, the rules are applied um, without even having access to the, to the information. Yeah. It's amazing when you think about how everything is set up, even with, you know, with ESDC and, and the uncertainty, but when you are trying to, you know, represent a company who's trying to file a labor market impact assessment, the, the, the basic instructions are laid out on the website but really the decision-making and the actual adjudication is based on principles that you have no clue, uh, you know, uh, how they're, how they're, they're formulated. Um, it's hard for me because I can't help but feel a little bit of a conspiracy theory. And, um, <laughs> and it goes back to prior to our, our past election. And it's hard for me not to believe that there was some edict from the PMO's office that said, you must reduce the number of foreign workers in Canada at all costs. So that when, you know, our conservative government is, is coming up for election, the lib- liberals can't hold it against us. And so mm-hmm. you see these things. And, you know, I, I, it's hard not to believe that a broken fax machine plays into it. <laughs> because <laughs> if, you're, if you're closing off the avenue for even submitting an application, well, you know, people's work permits are going to expire. They're going to run out of time. They're going to have to go home. And, and all of these mechanisms put in place to trip people up just for the smallest things, but that's a whole different discussion for a whole different podcast. And, uh, um, but, but yeah, in terms of communication. So if you have an application, so let's say you do actually get it in, you courier it, and then things start to kind of go south. They go off the rails a little bit. Maybe your client receives a call from an officer. Um, 
what as a representative can you do? Because they often don't want to talk to you. Yeah, they often skip right over the, you know, the representative, even though the employer has signed the form telling Service Canada, please talk to the representative, the lawyer or the consultant, um, rather than talking to me. Because oftentimes the employer, especially for like at least some of our clients, they're small businesses and they don't have a dedicated HR department. Um, And they really rely on us to help them navigate through this process and help with the paperwork. And, you know, they really have, um, you know, it's really difficult for them to drop everything and to, to deal with Service Canada's um, questions. So, uh, so if if um, an officer contacts an employer and the employer calls us and says they have these questions, then we tend to generally um, figure out through phoning or through you know other contacts with other lawyers across Canada, find out who the officers are for that area for that office, and we'll contact them directly. Uh, and you know, it's it's always amazing to me to. Um, you know, a lot of officers can be very facilitative, but there's a big difference in from officer to officer, from office to office in how Service Canada deals with deals with um, files. And so it's always a bit of a crapshoot what's going to happen um, if you're if you're going to be able to, you know, deal with any of those concerns or, or if you're just going to have to let the let the application be refused. Right. And I know from our experience, one of the most difficult aspects as well is is when an application is refused um, on its merits, then trying to understand, notwithstanding the form letter that goes out, what the real issues were. And sometimes our clients, who are the main point of contact in that conversation with the officer, um, they don't remember exactly what the key points are or, or what the main issues were. All they, uh, you know, all they take away from the call is, "No, my application isn't going to be uh, approved." And so when you're then facing a situation where you're trying to call back, uh, recently I had one officer who was extremely helpful. It was it completely floored me because out West, our program has been particularly ruthless. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was very cordial. She took the time to explain why they didn't approve. And there were clearly some, some miscommunication that, that occurred between um, our client and them. And this was before we were brought on to assist. Right. Um, but you could see where you know, the disconnect was. But average, everyday people who were trying to access the program would have no clue that the way they were setting things up was actually, you know, the way they presented things was setting them up for failure. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, and then not to have you know, a direct line to the officers when you call the 1-800 number, you're faced with, some person who says, well, we actually can't speak with the officer. We don't even know who was on the <laughs> file. That's what they, yeah. they tell us. We're deliberately blocked off and we're sorry about that. And so then you're left to doing exactly what you indicated, which is try to network with your colleagues in that region who may have once had a, a call from one of the officers and, and then was given their number to call them back. Right. And, and But even the people that <clears throat> are at the top that you speak with, often they cycle you know out of the program so quickly cuz it's so awful to work inside they oh, move on to, they move on to other government departments i mean it's got to be so hard and it makes me wonder these days you know we we avoid lmias we always have really at all costs like if an employer comes to us and says we're desperate for auto body tax we will find every other option to the, you know to present to them before we will say do an LMIA or an LMO application in the past. Um, it just it, it you'd be crazy as an employer to to do it unless you have really no other option. And and so I, it it's it, it makes me wonder sometimes what does Service Canada think people are actually doing? Like 
are people really coming through that program to abuse the system? Because I don't see it in my practice. Everybody that we deal with, it's genuine. And I mean, maybe in larger centers, there's a lot more, you know, people playing games and fake LMAs. I don't really know how that works. I don't know how you would ever pretend um, and, and sign up for the kind of enforcement that you that as an employer you'll be subject to, um, you know, for some fraudulent purpose. I just can't imagine how an employer would would benefit from that. But um, but you know, I, I it's it's just it goes to back to that whole thing with, that you were saying about you know the, the system is is rigged. Or it's set up um, to be as opaque and difficult to navigate as possible. And we haven't even started talking about the um, employer compliance yeah. provisions of the of Service Canada's LMIA system. And that, don't get me started on that. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> that's a completely, uh, completely separate um, nightmare uh, situation in and of itself. <laughs> so yeah, so obviously, you know, just to kind of summarize our discussion with Service Canada, it's it's not easy. You hope to get a number that you can call you. You know, you, you call the, the 1-800 number and say, hey, is there a way you can leave a message for an officer? And uh, 99% <laughs> of the time there isn't. And right. and you just hope to get lucky. Um, okay, so let's shift to the final department. And that's the Canada Border Service Agency. And uh, sometimes we need to interact with them because we have a client who's told us last minute that they're getting on a plane and they're flying. And we say, no, you need a work permit. And now there's this whole <laughs> new employer portal and, and uh, employer compliance. Uh, you know, you have to submit the job offer in advance. Yeah. Otherwise, you're, they're not just going to let you in like they did before. And so we were kind of panicking. You know, yeah. so, so what are some of the avenues that you have found uh, to try and reach out to an, a live officer? Well, I think I think we're lucky a little bit because we're in Halifax and the airport here does get quite a few international flights. But there is a there are humans at the end of the phone line if you call. So if you you know if you know somebody's coming in on a flight and you know the approximate time and, and the airline, you can call the the local airport and just say, look, we've got somebody coming in. Um, we need to get some documents to the airport right away or whatever. Um, generally they're, I don't want to jinx myself, but yeah. generally they're pretty facilitative, um, compared to, I think, dealing with a larger airport where, you know, you, you know, there could be probably, you know, tens, if not hundreds of officers working at one time. So you'll never be able to, to talk to the right person. Um, but I find, and I also have to say, like, I, I, I don't know if this is uh, accurate for the rest of the country, but out here I find CBSA officers, um, more facilitative than in other uh, than other immigration departments. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is that a terrible thing to say? Because I, I do all. find them fairly helpful. Yeah, Alberta. Um, is it and, really and I, bad? <laughs> well, I the borders. I, I worked as an officer on the border in a prior life, um, uh, and I can yeah. tell you that in Alberta we avoid the the land crossings. Um, the airports also are places to avoid. So. Basically, what I'm saying is if you're applying for an application <laughs> at a port of entry, um, it's worth the money, I guess, now to fly into Halifax and then uh, <laughs> and, and then catch a, and then catch a flight across to uh, Calgary or, you know, to um, Edmonton <clears throat> if Alberta is your destination. <laughs> I don't want to say that they're easy. I just want to say that, they're, that you can talk to them. They won't yes. always do what you want them to do. Yeah but at least you can get them on the phone, you know? And that's all that's you want. Sense. Yeah, that's yeah. all you I mean, want well, is, sure, yeah. 
just a reasonable officer and, and someone who's, who's open to speaking with you. So yeah, I don't think that's the experience across the country, but there's definitely pockets where there's a, a little bit more light shining at the back of the tunnel. So interesting. Yeah. Well, that's, and sometimes, you know, sometimes we, you know, with the new employer portal thing, you know, where you have to submit the job offer, um, you know, we've even had officers call us from the airport and say, um, what am I supposed to do with this, this, portal thing what is this you know where they where they weren't familiar I don't think there was enough training that was happening at the beginning of the year when when that um phased in and um so we would we did have officers calling and saying like what am I supposed to do with this and we would say okay so you type in the number and it populates your form on your end however that works you know um and and that that was also nice too rather than the officer just refusing to process it or refusing the application um you know it was we really appreciated that that you know, communication. That, that's great. Now, if you do have someone traveling and you have to, well, let's say they've got some criminality. So maybe they've got a couple DUIs or some other, you know, other uh, conviction that could make them potentially criminally inadmissible to Canada. And they're, they really have to travel quickly. Um, in some cases, I, I know some ports of entry will allow you to pre, not necessarily pre-adjudicate, but at least provide uh, a, a submission in advance to get a little bit of a uh, an indication as to whether there's a, a stronger or <laughs> a weaker yeah. likelihood of, of getting that uh, TRP or rehabilitation application approved at a port of entry. So what is your experience um, out, out east? Well, I think that, so we, we don't have land borders in Nova Scotia, but so people tend to go through St. Stephen, so they drive through New Brunswick and over to Maine to um, to do that crossing, or they or vice versa, coming up from Maine. Um, so, I think that our experience has always been we advise people to have the rehabilitation submissions with them, and preferably to have already applied for their temporary residence permit at a visa office wherever, like generally speaking in New York City. Um, and then if they need to come on, you know, short notice for an emergency, let's say a family member is sick in Canada and they, they haven't gotten their approval from New York, they travel with that document. We haven't sent anything for like pre-approval, but we haven't had any issues with clients, you know, with fairly uh, minor offenses, like a couple of DUIs, maybe one, you know, conviction for something more serious. Um, we haven't had any trouble with them getting in for short times. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like it's, it's also, you know, I always, I always get really nervous when I've got a client showing up at the border and I'm, and I haven't, I'm not there with them and I don't have any way to control, you know, what happens. So I'm always anxiously waiting on my cell phone to hear, did they get through and everything go smoothly. And I think also with the new ETA, the electronic travel authorization, that's going to change as well because you have to disclose your criminal um, history on that. I think before you get your your authorization, right? You bet. Yeah, and I uh, yeah, absolutely. I think our our American counterparts who tend to be the ones that I deal with uh, more frequently, I think maybe they can still slip under the radar. <laughs> with, right. With, uh, without needing that, but you're you're right. And you know, that's a great uh, strategy that you pointed out. I just want to draw attention to it again. If you do have someone uh, who you know is going to be traveling and there's time to file it at a consulate abroad, if it's a rehabilitation application, when you do that and then you have to go on short notice to, uh, you know, to Canada and you fly in for business or otherwise, and you have shown that you've, you've, uh, you've, you know, you've 
try to, to, to show some due diligence in, in trying to do what's right in advance, but it's just the lengthy processing times, for sure officers tend to be a whole lot more facilitative than just showing up and saying, hey, I'm here. I know I was supposed to do something else, but uh, I didn't have time to do it and just let me in, right? So Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, it's it's always, it has to be kind of the perfect case too. You know, the person has to be visa exempt and all the other boxes you have to check off. But it's true. We have, you know, that's probably the best solution in a, in a pinch. Perfect. Well, this has been great, Liz. I really appreciate uh, the time that you've taken. And, you know, I when I do these podcasts, I'm always quite um, quite open and, uh, you know, in terms of this challenges that exist sometimes in, in getting this, uh, actual out there to the masses. And, uh, Liz and I have had a little bit of a, a, a battle with, uh, some of our <laughs> connectivity issues with Skype. And so I want to express appreciation to her for her patience with me as we've had to stop and restart a couple times to get this, uh, where we need it to be. But the, no ins- problem. It's fun. yeah, the insight's been great. And, uh, yeah, we just really, really appreciate um, the time that you've taken to, to come on. Now, one of the things that I always ask all of my uh, my guests, um, so individuals, let's say they're they're struggling, they're trying to figure out how to inquire on a file, they're they've got really any immigration related issue associated with their with our topic here. They're going to say, "Hey, I remember listening to this podcast with this Liz from, you know, from uh, from from Halifax." Um, how do they contact you? What's the best way for them to reach out to you if they need a little help and assistance? The best way is probably through our website, nsimmigration.ca, which stands for northstarimmigration.ca. Um, and there's, a, there's, like I said, there's four or five of us on the, online here at the, uh, at the office, all lawyers, um, ready to help anybody who needs it. Awesome. I'll make sure that I put that in the show notes uh, for this episode. And uh, once again, thanks so much, Liz, I really appreciate uh, you coming to join us. No problem. Thanks for having me, Mark. All right. Take care. Take care. Well, that interview with Liz was awesome. You know, I, I had to laugh when she told us about that story of her, uh, you know, working over in Asia and uh, arriving. And I think it was Korea, she said, um, with $50 essentially in her pocket, no job offer, and even working <laughs> without authorization. Um, boy, if there's anyone who can appreciate what a foreign worker goes through in our country, um, it's Liz. So uh, what a great uh, a great episode. And uh, I'll make sure to put the links to the various government bodies that we talked about, as well as Liz's blog that kind of triggered the, the thought process that I had to bring her on in the first place, we'll put a we'll put a link to that and to her her site in the um, in the show notes, and also I'll provide you with a link to the case specific inquiry email and uh, the email address for case review. Uh, and sometimes those avenues are effective, as as Liz and I discussed, and sometimes they're not. Well, thank you for listening in to another episode of the Canadian Immigration Podcast. It was great to have you with us. I have uh, a great lineup of other guests that I've already recorded that I'll be releasing here shortly. And I'd encourage you to share the love and share the podcast with all those that you think might benefit from it. If you have ideas about the podcast and different um, speakers or guests that you think would be great to have on the podcast, or even you yourself, if you'd like to come on, just send me an email. And uh, we can see if our schedules work. Um, the the strength in this podcast is always in the guests. And so uh, hopefully this will continue to, to go forward and that it will be of use to you and your 
your clients as you attempt to navigate this crazy world of Canadian immigration law, policy, and practice. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, your trusted source for information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. If you would like to contribute a question for future podcasts or wish to set up a legal consultation with Mark, please visit www.ht-llp.com. Canadian Immigration Park